Well, greetings, listeners in listener land. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. We originate from and connect the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and live. Many people know what's going on in the Ukraine right now and some very, very unbelievable kinds of visual pictures and the things that you read able to contact Dr. Valerie Tsutsadi. He's visiting assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Kansas. He is very well known. He is an expert in the area of Russian involvement, and he hails from Russia Okay, and has a great deal of uh, information to tell us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. I, I appreciate you taking time to talk to us about what's going on in the Ukraine. And I really didn't know personally a lot about the Ukraine. And last night I went through probably more information that I could absorb. And I was shocked at the suffering that has gone on in that country over the course of its entire existence. Can you amplify a little bit and give us a kind of a brief history of the Ukraine? Yes, I will try, of course, in this uh, very limited time. So Ukraine is a Slavic-speaking country, so they are related to Ru- Ukrainians are related to Russians by language and mostly by religion too. So they are mostly Russian Orthodox or Ukrainian Orthodox uh, Church. The problem with with the sameness, you would think that Ukrainians should get along well with uh, Russians, but this sameness uh, produced some issues too, very, very strong issues, such as, for example, in 1930s, there was something called Holodomor, which is like a port famine. So Russian center, the Bolsheviks back then, they enforced a policy which led to millions of Ukrainians dying of hunger. Uh, And of course, back then, the world knew very little about what was going on inside the Bolshevik, you know, controlled country. So that was the first huge step, perhaps, in in which Ukrainians suffered. But there were previous ones, too, because in 1918, Ukraine actually proclaimed its independence. But then it was recaptured by the Bolsheviks. So, but throughout the Soviet time, after actually the UN was created, Ukraine still had a seat at the UN. Many people don't know that, but Ukraine actually, even during the Soviet Union, had its own seat in the UN. Ukraine, along with Belarus, hmm. and plus USSR. So in 1991, Ukraine basically destroyed the prospect for the recreation of the USSR by disagreeing to sign the new union agreement. After Ukraine refused to sign the new union agreement, the then president of Russia, Boris Yeltsin, also refused to sign, and that was the end of the USSR, Mm. pretty much. So this is a very brief kind of overview of the history of Ukraine in Russia, well, especially Ukraine, but of course, you know, not not very comprehensive, obviously. As we look at what's going on there now with the invasion of Ukraine, where will President Putin stop, in your opinion? I know you have some definitive thoughts about this. Some people think, oh, he was just going to take over certain regions. Some say, oh, he's going to want some puppet government. 
But what does that hold for some of the other bordering states on the western yeah. edge of the old Soviet Union? Right, right. That's a great question. Uh, yeah, let me just, uh, you know, I forgot to mention the most important prelude to this conflict, to this kind of uh, escalation, which of course happened in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and started war in eastern Ukraine. So for eight years, actually, since 2014, Ukrainians lost like thousands of people in that conflict. So mostly it was a low-scale conflict. So, you know, it wasn't as noticeable, obviously, as this uh, latest escalation. So in terms of prospects, well, at this point, it is pretty clear that Russia wants to take over the entire country, mm-hmm. not necessarily by like directly controlling it, like directly annexing it, Rather, they at least at this point, at least they signal they want to install a puppet government there, which is as you know as well as it gets. Actually, I mean, as a, you don't have to necessarily directly control Ukraine if you have like a puppet government, and it has worked in many other places around the world, and it seems to be the plan for Ukraine. Unfortunately, for the rest of the world, that will not be the end of the story. Because Russia, Russian officials are quite frank about their plans on expansion, territorial expansion. And their plans include all former Soviet Union countries, including the Baltic states, which are the three Baltic states are Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. They are very vulnerable, small states, and they are very likely to be uh, the next target of Russia if Putin takes over Ukraine relatively quickly and with relative little bloodshed. I will just remind uh, the listeners that Baltic countries are actually members of uh, NATO. Right. Mm, so if they are attacked, that will directly affect all NATO members. At least it is supposed to affect them. And the Russian plan, so far at least, they seem to hold this belief in NATO's ability to protect far-flung countries such as the Baltic states. That's kind of the brief overview of uh, possible uh, implications. Now, I know you can't look into Vladimir Putin's head or his heart and wonder what in the world he's doing and why he's doing what he's doing. But as you look as an outsider and you've observed history repeating itself over and over over the course of time, his ultimate goal is reproduce the Soviet Union? You know, it is actually not that hard to understand what Putin wants. You don't have to look into his head. You just need to know a little bit about the history, about the public opinion in Russia. And so Putin is portrayed, especially you know, in the last few days, as almost like a crazy person who acts kind of irrationally and things like this, which is partly true because Russian economy is suffering. People will feel the problems very soon if they haven't felt them already. But uh, I must also say that these significant support for this policy in terms of, not in terms of starting war with Ukraine and like killing civilians, they're not necessarily, no. For example, the level of nostalgia for the USSR is very high and has been quite high among uh, ordinary Russians. Uh, many people miss the USSR as a better place. And so Putin's policies are sort of a response to this popular, you know, demand, as he thinks. Of course, 
Russians, on average at least, they miss the star, but they don't realize that for the creation and for the keeping an empire, you have to pay. And I don't think they are prepared to pay the price. They just kind of have this sentiment, but they don't necessarily want to pay for that. So far, they did not have to pay for this, not much at least, uh, even though there were sanctions, but they were relatively mild. The Russian economy stagnated, but it didn't. It wasn't like in free fall or something like this. Um, so this is sort of a test now. You know, if Putin managed to get a hold of Ukraine, again, with relatively low price to pay, then, you know, Russians will report him. Many Russians, maybe not everybody, but uh, many. I, 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 I don't know exactly how many, but uh, this, this kind of broad support for some sort of USSR is there. So Putin sort of acts accordingly to this popular mood, and he thinks that if he delivers, then he will get domestic support, and eventually people outside too for, will forget about the massacres or whatever is going on now in Ukraine. And by the way, things will probably get even worse later on, uh, unfortunately. But even so far, I mean, there have been already civilians killed there. This next question is actually, it has two folds to it. And one deals with the sanctions and the economy and then how individual citizens within the Russian Republic respond to that, because there have been many protests in St. Petersburg and Moscow. We know that there have been arrests there. President Zelensky of the Ukraine was asking the West to really press for sanctions in a hard way, and they didn't seem to be delivered like that. My question now is how much more sanctions will be needed to have the Russian government change some course? Is there a kickback then to the West? And then how will people in Russia respond who are protesting or will there be more protests because of how that's going to impact them in the long run? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, of course, I don't know exactly. I, I just can tell you a few facts. So first fact, Russia, in the previous years, uh, Russia was amassing hard currency reserves and gold. And some people have warned that, I mean, it was almost open that, you know, it was almost uh, like an open secret that uh, the Russians amassed the hard currency reserves in order to withstand sanctions. Obviously, if you are holding reserves in anticipation of sanctions, then the sanctions must be a response to something. So that means you're planning something, right? This kind of conflict wasn't necessarily like totally unpredictable. So if a country is holding reserves and make kind of experts make statements that, oh, okay, yeah, we are holding reserves because we are preparing for sanctions and stuff like this, for more sanctions, that means, you know, something is going on. So as far as I remember, the amount of the reserves is uh, around $600 billion, which is a fair amount of money, obviously. And again, experts say it might help Russia to withstand a lot of pressure for a couple of years, maybe three years, but probably not much beyond that, depending, of course, on many other things, such as oil prices and stuff like this, because Russia is... Uh, a large exporter of energy, oil and gas, and oil prices have been pretty comfortable for Russia so far. 
And the Russians have reasonable hopes that they will be able to withstand sanctions. And also, as we can see, the sanctions so far have been, well, I don't want to say underwhelming, but as long as Russia can export oil and gas and get uh, paid for it, and the prices are good, then I don't see how Russian, how the Russian economy and the government will crumble. But of course, you know, if things started getting worse, there would be more protests. Because remember, the worst thing that could happen to a nation when the nation starts getting like poorer, it's really hard to fall from a certain level of life standard downward. It's okay to stay more or less at the same kind of um, place, but when nations get like poorer when the revenues drop uh, dramatically and in a relatively short span of time, then things, uh, of course, get out of hand very quickly. But again, like it's, at this point, it's really hard to hard to tell like what what will happen because the sanctions have been so far, as I mentioned, they take hard. But I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it's gonna it's gonna this kind of impact will last because maybe the market overreact from time, so maybe it was sort of an overreaction, and maybe there will be a correction. It has already happened, actually. Also, U.S. markets rebounded a little bit because once the traders learned that there will be no turning off some of the like crucial instruments such as SWIFT or like transferring money across nations and stuff like this. So we'll see. At this point, it's really hard to uh, say what will happen, but it's difficult to predict uh, anything definitively. So uh, protesters, I know there was has been some protesting. I guess Putin has uh, threatened, will arrest you for protesting. Does it matter to him that there are protesters, do you think? I mean, this is your opinion? Yeah, there have been actually surprisingly large protests. Uh, why I say surprisingly? Because for the past year, especially since January last year, the government policies on public protests have hardened uh, even further. So uh, it's, it's very difficult to protest in, in Russia. For, for some innocent protest action, uh, people get like in jail, uh, get fined. There are several hundred of people currently in Russian prisons who are considered to be political prisoners. So it is surprising that the, the protests were so wide. Right. But again, so how it works in Russia, at least, is that I don't expect the protest to widen unless Russia suffers heavy losses in Ukraine and the war becomes sort of a, a long and a bloody campaign with Russian losses, both, both on, on the battlefield and also on the economy. Then, then things probably get uh, worse. You mentioned Putin that he, that he like, is he afraid of this protest or not? I see this portrayal of Putin all the time, like villain or super like human that you know doesn't care about like protests uh, and uh, doesn't care about public opinion. That's not true. That's not true. He's uh, very, uh, very attentive to public opinion. As I earlier mentioned, this whole campaign in Ukraine is in part a response to a perceived popular opinion about the nostalgia for the Earth star. So I don't think he's unafraid. He just thinks that he's a a oppressive apparatus. He's capable of suppressing this protest. That's what he's counting on. But once the protest, if suppose they expand, 
I mean, in Moscow and uh, etc. I don't believe Russian, uh, you know, security services will actually fire shots on on uh, on people. And if they do, if there are casualties, I mean, in some, I don't know. At this point, it's too early to say about anything like this. But suppose there were large protests and shots were fired and killed people. I mean, Putin would be swept away. I think very quickly, very quickly. So he's not like an omni like all-powerful like politician or anything he's just he's fairly attentive to the public opinion and he seems to be so far at least he has been doing more or less what public wanted him to do uh, at least large very large uh, uh, part of the public war in ukraine is probably a deviation in a way because in a sense that in december last year he came up with the ultimatum for nato and for the u.s and he expected that NATO would back down. And the ultimatum included to basically to get out of Ukraine, to force the Ukrainian government to accept Russian terms of peace in eastern Ukraine. And also he demanded that NATO roll back from eastern and central European countries. So that ultimatum, nobody accepted it seriously even. And then, and then he had to escalate. So I don't think this kind of whole plan about Ukraine was very well thought through. And hopefully that means that it won't uh, go as planned and it won't uh, uh, materialize uh, for, for Putin. And the longer it seems to go for Ukraine that they hold out, the less it's going to be very popular back home for the Russian people and uh, President Putin. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. The longer the campaign, the greater the casualties, the worse backlash at home. Because remember, they, you know, previous wars that Putin engaged in were actually relatively small with much smaller adversaries. For example, Russian-Georgian war in 2008. So Georgia was like 4 million country, small and, and relatively poor obviously unprepared to withstand anything like any adversary like Russia. Well, Ukraine is like 10 times larger than Georgia uh, by population and then by territory probably more than like 20 times or something like this. So Ukraine is basically the largest country that Putin has taken on so far. And not only Putin, actually, if we think about post-Second World War and think even uh, going even back to the US, even the USSR, you know, never took on uh, a large country like Ukraine, Ukraine size. Uh, you know, the largest country it took was uh, Afghanistan, and Afghanistan is smaller than Ukraine, actually. The terrain is kind of difficult and stuff like this, but still, the size of Ukraine, its capacity uh, to resist uh, is, is uh, I think, uh, fairly you know, high. We'd love to check in with you down the road and have additional conversations about this. We've been talking to Dr. Valerie Zuzzati. He's visiting assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Kansas. Valerie, thank you very much for coming on St. Louis in Tune. We greatly appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you so much. We are glad you listened to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. Please share this podcast or tell a friend. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker.